Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm recording. Are you recording into your mic? 100%? I'm recording. In your mic? Amy, I'm recording. In your mic. Okay, come on, be a professional. Let's get this started. You're like Bill Shorten. He wouldn't answer a question this morning. Are you drunk? Is that what's yes. happening right now? Yes, I am off my head. <laughs> off my one Colin's sip totally of wine. Keep this in. <laughs> Collins will. He often does stuff like this. At least I'm like. Shut up. We are live. Welcome to the Millennial Divide from, where are you? Amsterdam. Amsterdam. I'm often forgetting because I'm so well-travelled. You really are. And Melbourne, Australia. We are a global enterprise today and we are going to talk lots of things. We're going to mix it up a little bit today. So we're trialling something. If it fails, blame Dim. It's on (laughs) Dim. So give us your feedback because this is going to mix things up a little bit. We're trying something. If you don't like it, tell us. We'll go back to the the old. Ellen and I quite like just stability and consistency, so we're freaking out. But we will it's not this that a go. different. And yeah. also, it gives a very good indication of the millennial divide, really, because I am new and innovative and open to change. And uh, Amy was very, very much not open to any kind of change. And Ellen was on the fence again. So. <laughs> I, I had to interpret both sisters. <laughs> ideas and say, actually, we're all talking about the same thing. And they went, oh, yeah, you're right. Let's do it. It is true. It is true. It is. The division just gets worse with time difference, sleep deprivation and um, global uh, changes or or distances. (laughs) I can't even get my words out. I have had one sip of wine tonight. So for someone who hasn't been drinking for a long time, this could, yeah, loose and free. So I'm Amy. I'm 37. I'm at the top of the millennial divide. And this division is certainly going to be apparent today, I think. I'm Ellen. I'm 33 and I'm in the middle. I'm Dimity. I'm actually 28. You guys, last last week I said I was 27. That's oh, not true. I'm 28. I had a birthday. Yeah, you really so are. You jumped. Yeah. That was a while ago. That was confronting. I listened yeah. back and I was like, oh, yeah. no. A month ago I, I had a birthday. So today we're going to talk about lots of cool things, but we're going to start off and, we, and what's going to change is we're going to do a bit of a deep dive. So we're going to talk about Me Too and what is it? Is it still necessary? Do we like it? Do we hate it? How does it translate across the different uh, ideas across the millennial divide? And do we still think that there's a momentum that's happening, particularly given in in light of the latest Jeffrey Rush um, outcomes? At the end, we'll do a quick fire. So we've got recommendation. We've got a little bit of chat about Game of Thrones. So let's just jump in. Dimmer, this is your thing. Go to it. Okay, so to give a bit of an overview about what's been happening and why we think this is a pretty important thing to be discussing, worthy of a deep dive, I think, 
is because after a huge amount of media attention and public scrutiny, a court recently found in favour of Geoffrey Rush in the defamation case he brought against Sydney's Daily Telegraph. So this case centred on allegations that Rush Rush had uh, engaged in inappropriate behaviour, that's a quote, toward a female actor in a 2015 and 2016 performance of King Lear. These allegations were printed in the Daily Telegraph and at that point the accuser's name was undisclosed. So the person who was accusing Rush of this behaviour didn't speak directly to the Daily Telegraph. She had made a confidential complaint to the Sydney Theatre Company after the production had actually finished. So she'd requested that Rush not be made aware of the complaints at that time. However, following the publication of the article, an enormous amount of attention was given to the case. When Rush made the decision to sue the paper for defamation, the accuser's name, which we now know as Erin Jean Norville, was disclosed as she agreed to testify for the newspaper. On Thursday last week, so Thursday the 11th, um, this all proved to be in vain, her testimony, because Justice Michael Wigney made comment on the unreliability and inconsistencies in her description of the events. So essentially saying that Jeffrey Rush had won the case because uh, there was no reliability in the case against him um, of instances of sexual harassment during the play. So for obvious reasons, many have drawn comparisons to the hashtag MeToo movement that was widely publicised with many accusations made against director Harvey Weinstein in the US in the last few years. Um, but in Australia, the movement has felt a bit slower and it's it's been less impactful. And it's quite difficult to feel that this verdict might actually contribute to its downfall entirely. So my question for you both is, do you think that the, that the Me Too movement could still exist after cases like this? And do we need it? I think, look, going back to it, because the Me Too movement feels, no, it only came out, what, a year or so ago. Um, but it feels like it it's been happening for a while. So I had to kind of go back and go, oh, yeah, it is still occurring because we had such a huge groundswell after Harvey Weinstein and, um, you know, all of the cases that started to come out and then it's kind of gone quiet, I feel. Um, so I did have to kind of go back and go, oh, do we still need it? And, yeah, I think we do. I think it's still a really important discussion to you know, have. And what I found interesting um, in my research was that the Sex Discrimination Commissioner's latest survey of 10,000 people, which was in 2018, found that 39% of women and 26% of men experienced workplace sexual harassment over the past five years. So, you know, when you're looking at statistics like that, I think it, yeah, it still is really important to have this as part of the discussion. Have you, Elle? Have you ever experienced it? No, and this is also what I've been thinking about, that I, you know, when all the Me Too first came out, I kind of was going, oh, have I ever had that? And these are really horrible and they're saying so many women are experiencing it. Maybe I had and I didn't realise it was, but I really generally can say I, I haven't experienced any of that and I was trying to unpick why that might be. And the only thing I can kind of put my finger on is – because I work predominantly in a female industry maybe and so I'm not as exposed to kind of maybe those behaviours that you might see in other male-dominated industries, like very corporate areas. Were you disappointed that you didn't have an anecdote? <laughs> no. Solidarity. <laughs> Is it like when you get, like the other day I got wolf whistled and I was like, oh, 
still good. No, that's not that's appropriate. Terrible, oh. Amy. That is so bad. <laughs> I'll take when what did I you get, get wolf whistled? Was it with your daughter? It was. So it was a bit orcs. Oh, that's <laughs> was a bit gross. Orcs. That's even gross. more gross. I know. Have you, Amy? You guys are so out of touch. I know. Oh, yeah, but I've worked in male-dominated That's industries. what I mean. So that's yeah, what I think yeah. it is with... With me, that yeah. it's, you know, I'm a teacher so and a primary teacher, so it's very female-heavy areas. So it would be – and the guys are genuinely very in touch with their feminine side and they're very aware of females and how to talk to them and how to interact because that's what they're surrounded by all the time. Yeah. So I think they have a very different way of interacting with women than maybe in a male-dominated environment. I don't know. That's just me. Yeah. I mean, I certainly started my career in a male dominated Mm. industry, um, you know, 15 years ago where Mm. it was very different. And as a young female, you just sort of had to put up or shut up a little bit. Mm. And you were seen as a bit painful if you Mm. raised something. So I once sat at a dinner with about 30 men and older men, and they spent a good 20 minutes talking about my bra. At, they didn't? Yeah, at the dinner table. Oh, my gosh. And it was a work function that I was um, there for. And How old were you then? I was 25. Do really? you think, going back, I know not the fact that you're older, but the fact that the Me Too movement has happened, do you think as a 25-year-old you would now be able to speak up or do you think it still yeah, would be no. taboo? No, but I don't think they would do it and I think there's more licence for others to mm. jump in to correct it. Um, mm. My boss at the time was a man and he did intervene um, to shut down the conversation and I did get a follow-up apology by the ringleader the following day. That all had a lot to drink. Um, but it still went on and I was the, I was a very young, much younger mm. than and, I, and also the power imbalance. So, no, I wouldn't have mm. done it because I was the junior mm. and it was the way that my career, I sort of had to suck it up a bit and I thought and I knew instinctively if I didn't laugh along then mm. I would be a problem and I yeah. probably wouldn't get other work because mm. it was with a, a cross, it was a cross industry mm. event. So there were lots of people there who would impact my career across the board. So I, I just yeah. knew that's mm. you don't mess with that. So I'm kind of a bit done with me too. I know that's a bad thing to say. And Dima, when I alluded to that earlier, you're like, oh, <laughs> but I yeah, just, that's I, exactly what I was saying. I was like, Amy, that seems like a really inappropriate comment in light of all of the women's and their experience. But yeah, that, if that sounded like that to you, that's <laughs> that's an interpretation. So it's just different, I guess. Yeah, that's pretty much how we roll. But. I because I've been at the other end and this is actually pre me too. So I'll give you a, another story where one day I was commuting Melbourne Sydney. I used to do that a lot with a job and I ended up sitting next to the former CEO of a very big large company. And he and I got chatting and we had a lovely conversation. He had daughters my age and he was just a really lovely guy and he basically during that flight suggested that he you know he'd be available to mentor me a little bit not and it wasn't a formal thing like that. It was more informal. But if I wanted to have a coffee to chat about my career, well, he was up for that. Anyway, I followed him up because it was an amazing opportunity and I really wanted to. I thought, brilliant, that's great. Guys have this all the time and finally I've got a, someone who I can sort of, you know, lean on. And we caught up once and he said to me, oh, I just feel this is a bit inappropriate. I feel uncomfortable. Mm. And we never caught up again. Mm. And he was an older really? man. Yep, it was completely yeah. platonic. There was n- I got no vibe from him. He was completely above board. Mm. But he felt that it was a bit, that the optics weren't great. And so as a consequence, I lost this amazing opportunity for a mentor. And that's where I get distressed because I actually think sometimes 
Me Too can inadvertently have a detrimental impact on women seeking male mentors mm. in some respects. And Forbes um, found that three recent surveys arrived at the same problem, that a growing number of men report being uncomfortable or afraid to work alone with women. So it's that whole kind of Mike Pence thing where he said, I'm never going to dine alone with a woman. A lot of men are saying, well, I'm going to go into the office and leave the door open if I talk to them or, no, I won't mentor them, um, you know, and take them out for work dinners and this kind of growing concern with it, which oh, I get. But I isn't hadn't it, thought about that. But isn't it also just women have never wanted to have this advancement, it's just, uh, sorry, have advances made on them. It's just now that they're speaking up about it. So it's actually, well, if you're unsure about your behaviour, it's probably the wrong behaviour. Just don't. Yeah, but it's all. But I do see the optics thing. I really do. I do see that if men are a bit uncertain and they're having to relearn a, the world a little bit in a new light, and not to put blame on anyone, but I I do kind of see that at the moment there's a transition happening, and if you wanted to err on the side of caution, then it's easier to not mentor a young woman than it is to put yourself out there and potentially threaten your career that I mean if that's your choice oh I feel really confused about this now I had a really really clear like argument and I really understood my thoughts and now I'm really lost and I feel unsure about everything what was your clear argument well my clear argument was Amy's an idiot and the Me Too movement is very important so she's actually one (laughs) that's your default oh really Yeah, because I get that. I get that I don't want a world in which it's, you know, I've never I've never wanted a world in which men are, are demonised and um, women are the victim and men can't, you know, feel that they can't um, act in a completely normal way for fear of what the perception of their behaviour might be. So, but then I'm also like, well, and, and I, I think the thing with this case is, is that sexual harassment has a huge grey area mm. and that was what was being dissected by this court, which was awful, and I think this whole case was awful and should never have happened like this. Um, but what ended up happening was a complete line-by-line dissection of sexual harassment with different interpretations mm. and different perceptions of the same events. So, But don't you think they're not mutually exclusive? Like you can agree with the Me Too movement and think that it's an important part, but also understand that, you know, men in the workplace may be facing, you know, a bit of a change of things and that we also have to address that, that you can have it concurrently. You don't have to say, oh, well, just because women might not be getting mentored, the Me Too movement's crap. Uh, Yeah, Um, I guess what my concern is, is that I also still work in corporate life and have done for a while and and corporate life is, so this is sexual harassment in the workplace that I'm talking about mm, now, mm. rather than more broadly, but the the go-to for corporate life is quick, let's do some education. So again, Elle, you quoted a (laughs) Forbes article, um, I'll quote a Forbes article, article too, which looked at the number of harassment claims over the past year of Me Too. And they found that 54% of companies reported harassment claims have gone up and that number actually shot up to 84% of companies with more than 20,000 employees. But the problem is that they're really just addressing, most of these are addressing the issue with just more education. So I've done more freaking education on sexual harassment than I can poke a stick at in the last Mm. year. And I tell you what, some of the dickheads are still doing it. And it's because there's a lack of 
uh, I don't know, backbone in actually addressing the dicks who are still doing this. Like you don't need to educate your whole workplace to say don't touch people inappropriately and don't say weird stuff. Mm. Like really, people are adults. That should be probably something that you know. Mm. I guess kind of, Elle, what you were touching on in a a – roundabout way is that you're in female-dominated workplaces, but really that just means that the culture didn't encourage this kind of behaviour, mm. right? Because yeah. it was, for whatever reason, set up in a certain way that is um, errs towards female, you know, employment. Yeah. And it's about instead of, you know, countless education and countless, you know, uh, news articles or calling it out or protests or rallies and things, it may be about setting up a culture that doesn't encourage this kind of behaviour. Because when I think about my experience, mm. and I also work have worked in incredibly female-dominant industries across the board with my 3,000 different jobs I've had, except for one, which was in property. And in that brief time, I was sexually harassed every time I went into work, as well as every other person there. You know, I had a penis thrust at me, like, with he put one of his legs up on a desk and, like, thrust his crutch towards me, towards my face as I worked. And they also asked how I felt when a new employee started, um, how I felt not being the most pretty girl in the office anymore. Like it was so messed Mm. up, but that was public. It was Mm. all public. Everyone was seeing it. It wasn't behind closed doors. So the culture of the place really encouraged it. But how does it change? I think the thing that I find most upsetting, Ames, about your point of view is that, like, if the Me Too movement dies, then what next? Mm. Like, what else else can you possibly do to be like, hey, P.S., can you just stop fondling my breasts? Sorry, I don't mean to be a pain, but, like, please stop. So I guess that's a perfect segue to ask an expert on this. We've got Karen O'Connell on the line. Karen is the Associate Professor for the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology in Sydney. She's a sexual discrimination lawyer. She's also a relative because we can't actually do anything on this podcast without getting a relative on board. She is a cousin of ours, but she's also, she is an expert in her own right. She's recently published in The Conversation. She's appeared on The Current Affair and she has a number of articles published around Me Too and she's becoming increasingly the go-to person for Me Too in Australia. And she really speaks about how um, this defamation case from Jeffrey Rush could have a chilling effect in Australia on the Me Too movement. So we're getting, we've got Karen on the line. Hello. Hi, Karen, can you hear us? Yes, I can. We just had a couple of questions for you because, you know, we have just kind of been talking about our own experiences with um, sexual harassment in the workplace and um, what's been happening with the Me Too movement. But we kind of just wanted to get an expert opinion, which you obviously are, And we actually, I know we sent you a few questions, but there was actually one that we just kind of wanted to talk about first of all, which was that we were talking previously about, you know, Harvey Weinstein and how that fitted into the whole Me Too movement. And obviously um, he's been accused of uh, rape and, you know, crimes against women. But we're wondering Mm -hmm. about the difference between that and um, sexual harassment and how that works in the workplace and what that grey area is between... Um, the two things and and how it fits into the overarching Me Too movement? Yes, um, that's a very good question. Um, Sexual harassment can include sexual assault. So it's unwanted um, sexual behaviour or um, comments, etc. And that can include sexual assault. So some of the most serious of the sexual harassment cases have include have included sexual assault at work. 
And, I mean, we can talk about that a bit more because they're at the more serious end and it's interesting to make a comparison, for example, with the sorts of damages payouts that those cases get. Um, But putting that aside, um, you could also bring... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, a criminal case for that same behaviour um, if it was um, either a sexual assault involving a rape or even if it is an indecent assault. So any touching um, could still be um, a crime. Now, mm-hmm. one of the reasons that people would bring sexual harassment instead of a criminal case is because a criminal case involves police. Um, mm-hmm. it, it has a different standard of proof. So you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt instead of on the balance of probabilities, mm. and it's a much harder um, uh, evidentiary sort of burden to meet. And also you don't get a payment in a criminal case. Mm. Um, so in a civil case, in a sexual harassment case, you could ask for certain you know, things to happen, including um, a financial payment. Oh, right. I never understood the difference. That's really interesting. So, Karen, it's Amy here. Hello. Thank you for <laughs> dialing it in this evening. But we were interested to understand the implications of the Rush case in Australia. Obviously, you've been the go-to this week on, on implications in Australia. It feels like it's had a fairly detrimental impact on um, the Me Too movement and people seeking justice for sexual harassment in the workplace mm. or more broadly. Is that your read? What What's your take on this? Uh, well, at this point, I would say... Yes, the signs haven't been very good, but this judgment itself is going to be a really interesting point where we see what happens from here. So up until this point, I think that the Me Too movement in Australia very quickly got diverted into a conversation about defamation. Um, So when the high-profile cases were first raised in public and people started to talk about them, Almost immediately, um, the men who had accusations or allegations against them um, either raised defamation um, or actually brought defamation cases. So there was sort of either, it was either discussed or threatened or cases actually brought. And I think so really early on, even before we had a case to go to court, and this is our first, we were talking about defamation instead of talking about sexual harassment. So I think it had an impact right from the start in Australia. So we've taken a different track to other countries. But what I think is interesting now is it could... I'm worried that it will have a further silencing effect. That's my greatest concern. Possibility as well that people might rally and get angry and be more activist around this issue because of the outcome of the case. And why has that happened in Australia as opposed to other countries? Two reasons. One is because Australia has very strong defamation laws, uh, much stronger than, say, the United States. Mm-hmm. So in Australia, uh, if you have made the, the statement that um, is said to be defamatory, you have to be able to prove the truth of it. Mm-hmm. So in the Rush case, it was the Daily Telegraph or their publisher, Nationwide News, 
that had to prove that what they had written was true. Now, if the thing that you've written about is something that is, say, an interpersonal interaction, you know, only two people were involved. I'm speaking hypothetically now. Mm. You know, it was in a, a private place. It's really hard to prove that that was true. And and that's the problem with defamation in Australia. It, it shifts back to the person who said the statement. Um, so that is an issue. The other issue is that in Australia we've got a really strong culture of not speaking about sexual harassment mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and the reason for that is because people, I mean, reporting rates are really low for a start, but I think it gets um, exacerbated because none of it is out in the public realm. When people make complaints, um, they're usually private. And there's no, unlike somewhere like America where a lot of people litigate and it's out in the public gaze and it gets reported and everyone talks about it, but that doesn't happen in Australia. It all happens kind of behind closed doors, if you like, in private agreements and conciliations mm. um, where people actually aren't allowed to speak about it um, as part of the agreement. And so at every level in Australia where there's a sexual harassment incident, it doesn't get out into the public gaze. And Information then has a further impact on that because it further encourages people not to speak. Mm. It sounds pretty grim, Karen. What what, <laughs> are, what what are we going to do? How is no. this going to shift? What what does what needs to change? Um, well, I mean, this is why I found the Me Too movement so exciting because that's what needs to change. Everyone mm. needs to speak more, not less. Um, there's always there's more that we can do in every single area and. Uh, you know, in in terms of law, in terms of workplaces, in terms of policies and in terms of everyday life. Um, I still feel as if the Me Too movement has had an impact. I feel like it started people talking about things, even in, you know, within friend groups and workplaces. Um, And I think that was fantastic and really important. It's really hard to get a sense now of whether that is still happening. I don't think it has died out completely, but it isn't happening you know, in public as much as it was, you know, on social media, etc. But I, I think that the more that we can do to have people talk about it, the better it is because every time someone talks about it, it has an educative effect. And the thing that my biggest problem with the judgment, you know, I was in the court when the judgment summary was delivered and I wasn't surprised. I don't. I don't think many lawyers were surprised by the outcome of the case, but we were surprised, many of us, by how much the judge found Erin Jean Norville's evidence not credible. Mm. You know, so just sitting in the court and hearing him say over and over and over again, "Not credible, not credible," embellishment, this, that, um, behaviours that if you've read harassment cases, if you've spoken to people who've been harassed actually sounded like perfectly normal and believable responses to harassment. So it just put the question in my mind of how much our decision makers um, across the board, I certainly wouldn't single out him, um, actually do understand how people respond to harassment and what Mm. is um, a kind of understandable, normal, credible response to harassment. Mm. Particularly against somebody you know, as high up and high profile as Jeffrey Rush, I'd imagine? Well, I think that even in a professional context, the idea that women all of a sudden, you know, some one thing will be said to them or something will be done and they will just cut off from that person Mm. and never interact Mm. with them again. Um, It's just completely unrealistic because these relationships are all being constantly negotiated and reworked. And a very um, common thing for women to do, understandably, I think, 
is for them to try and shift the relationship mm. as opposed to just cut it off. Mm. Um, and and in that process of trying to manage it or to and and in the meantime, often hoping that it's not what you're worried is, is happening. You know, so trying to test the waters, see whether you can shift it onto a safer ground, see if you can make it more friendly, see if you can make it more paternal. You know, try and just move the relationship into something that will still be functional. Mm. Um, that that process is complex and it's not black and white and it cannot be a consistent thing. So the judge, you know, and law anyway, looks for consistency in evidence. But I think that requiring consistency in situations of sexual harassment is is just not realistic. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you make, Karen, because that in itself brings up so many questions and issues, both from perpetrator and victim and also on the changing relationships that um, older men and younger women in workplaces have and how we all navigate this new world so that there are clear lines, but at the same time there is that capacity to have um, ownership of the relationship and and exactly as you say it it's not surprising if someone feels that they've been harassed that they want to take a little bit of control and have a bit of power and and some of that may be by adapting a behavior that could be misconstrued as potentially encouraging or joking along with the behavior and I guess that's where it becomes very grey. And we one of the things we were talking about earlier is does this threaten the capacity for older male and younger female relationships in the workplace, um, particularly from a mentoring perspective? And and I guess that's the oh, fear. Yeah. What's what are your thoughts on that? Well I I think that would just be terrible. I mean I think that we just we need to accept that relationships, any relationships, professional, otherwise, all relationships are a process of, you know, of communication and negotiation and um, I think it is such a shame if people use something like this to shut down. Now the reason that I say that too is because I think traditionally women have been the ones who've shut down. Um, It's not that this that these that sexual harassment uh, or complicated relationships didn't happen in the workplace before it was just that women just wore it. Mm -hmm. Women um, move jobs or they they, if they could afford it, they may be dropped out of work. You know, it was really women having to adapt to workplaces that didn't really suit them. And so it's great that that's stopping. You know, that's a really fantastic thing. And so to, to respond by saying, oh, well, we just need to shut down something else, maybe older men, you know, working with younger women or whatever. I just, that's, to me, that's no kind of advancement. I think we just have to just get straight into the messiness of it and talk it all through and work out the best ways um, to work together and just do it that way. I don't think there's any other choice. Now, I, I, this, you know, the, the kinds of conversations we're having around defamation maybe do sound a little grim to you, but, you know, sexual harassment law has identified and recognised some of these very things. For example, there's a case that's quite old now where a woman participated in a very sexualised workplace um, and she still successfully argued sexual harassment because the judge in that case said everyone has a right to draw a line somewhere. Mm. So even though she, in order to just sort of survive in this workplace, she participated in some of the behaviour, but eventually it got so bad she just said no. 
And, you know, so I think that, that's been, I think that case is about 17 years old. I mean, we've recognised for a long time that these behaviours can be complex. They don't have to be black and white. So I think we just need to get more sophisticated, not less. Yeah, it's a really good point that I think particularly Australians, we don't like get, getting down into the dirty often. We don't like having the open conversations, but it's refreshing to hear you say that that's what, where we have to get to. And also it's clear action. I think at the moment mm. it, it people feel a little bit weary maybe with Me Too mm. potentially. And also because I was I was commenting that a lot of it is about just education that seems to be thrown around so much. But it's not education. It's about changing the conversation by the sounds of what you're saying. Mm. Well, it's interesting because, you know, when people talk about education in the context of sexual harassment, uh, I mean, we've made lots of mistakes there as well. I mean, uh, employers are supposed to um, put in place policies and then train their staff. But, you know, some of the most recent social science research shows that you can actually make things worse with the training that you do. So we can't just say education or training and assume that whatever we say is going to directly just change everyone. Um, Because, for example, some of the forms of training or education on sexual harassment just exacerbate stereotypes about women, you know, that they need special treatment at work or that you know, they're weaker or, you know, uh, or that men and women, as you say, maybe shouldn't work alongside each other. So, you know, you can't just say, oh, education or training, and that's just the end. But there just is no other way except looking at, you know, the actual institution or the actual relationship and working out what works best for that. Mm. Karen, this has been so enlightening. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. can see why you're busy this week. Yeah. (laughs) Go it's for a great pleasure. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> Lovely you. to chat. We'll speak Thanks. to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, I'm back on board with me too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Amy. Yes. Karen does it. that to people. She's so clever. <laughs> She's very so clever. Empowering. Yeah, really, yeah. I'm gonna get out there and I'm gonna start <laughs> hashtag me tooing it. <laughs> so glad. We've gotten everything we need for out of this deep dive, I think personally. <laughs> okay. So on lighter topics now, Game of Thrones. Yes, I put this one in because I had a question about whether I can probably guess whether you've watched it or not. Amy's a hard no. I already knew that when I put it in the WhatsApp. And Dimity, I think... Soft no. You're a soft... Yeah, I would say you'd be a soft no. You'd be like a watch every episode now and then. Yeah, I'm a dabbler. I like to be part of the conversation and I don't like feeling left out. So (laughs) I will do as much as I need to do in order to... You know, be with it. Yeah. So, you know, the first episode of its eighth and final season has just been released. It was released in America on their Sunday night and in Australia on Monday. And it seems to me that you either love it or you haven't watched it yet. <laughs> That's kind of how people I think I, someone described it as the 1%. I'm literally <laughs> like the solo person on the island who has not no, watched it. No, because I think I'm even, I'm even worse because I have watched it. In fact, I think I've watched a season, I've jumped in and out, and I'm just kind of indifferent. So I'm like the 0.001%. Really because I don't see how you can be indifferent to it. I just think... You get so hooked by the stories and the drama and the, you know, there's dragons. Yeah, that's where it lost me. Yeah, Yeah. the fantasy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the dragon, you know, it's the human element behind the dragons. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Great. (laughs) 
Nah. Um, All right, I'll take on board your recommendation, Elle. I will continue to watch it so that I can talk about it with other people and seem cool. Okay, if you're you're watching Game of Thrones, tell us why we're wrong, why we should get on board. Talk to Elle about it on Insta because she obviously needs a friend. Well, look, having said that, I didn't watch episode one because I spent the whole night trying to get the Foxtel passwords from my (sighs) in-laws and our parents and couldn't get onto it. And I was desperate. And I did realise that a lot of it was because of the hype, that I was so desperate to watch it on Monday because on my Instagram feed all day, everyone was having, you know, Game of Thrones parties and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And I wanted to be part of it. And my husband <laughs> couldn't understand it. He's like, you're really invested. I'm like, I just want to watch it. <laughs> so, all right, yeah, no spoilers, please. Yeah. Tell us what you think and we I, – I might – I haven't even seen one episode, not one. So well, I don't know. watch one. I will watch one. <laughs> I will watch one. On other recommendations this week, Elle, I do like this one. Yes. So you've got another one. Because you recommended it to I me. did. It is my recommendation. <laughs> and now Elle, in her glory, in has brought it back. So, so uh, it's, it's a book and it's called Normal People by Sally Rooney and Amy had given it to me and I – recognized the name. I went, oh, where's this from? And I realized it was on my notes page on books to read, which I always keep updated because I'm a book nerd. I was like, oh, great. This is out at the library when I went to look for it. Um, So yes, it's by Normal People. uh, Sorry, it's called Normal People. Um, Sally Rooney's an Irish author. She's 28 years old, so right in the millennial generation. And it's a novel about a complex First friend. book, though, isn't it? Second. I think. Oh, it's a second. Okay. Yeah, it's a Jesus second book. Christ, I know. making me feel quite know. inadequate. Her first one is Conversations oh. with Friends, which is also supposed to be exceptional. Oh. And it's a novel about a complex friendship and relationship between two teenagers, Connell and Marianne. So it's all set in kind of Dublin and Connell is a popular and handsome and highly intelligent high schooler. Marianne, um, her parents employ his mother to clean the house. And it's, I remember, Ames, you said it's similar to One Fine Day where these friends kind of come in and out of each other's lives and it's the points where they meet. But I think it would be a big mistake to dismiss this book as a mere romance. It's, I sent Ames a text the other day and I just wrote, this book is heartbreaking. And it is, it's just, it pulls you into their lives and takes you back to that fraught early 20s, late teens where you know, the simplest actions can be misconstrued and it just, your heart just splinters and I just can't explain it any better than that. It's so beautifully written and it's, you know, it's set in the early 2000s as well so there's a lot of references to those and um, to what's happening in the world at that point. Um, but, yeah, if you need just a beautiful written book, um, it's a really great one. Yeah. Say the name one more time. What was Normal it? People by Sally Normal Rooney. People by <laughs> Sally. You're writing. Thanks, Jess. <laughs> yeah, it's get on board. It's uh, it, it is a beautiful book and one that's got a lot of depth to it. So I will support that one. I have read that one, and it is not involving dragons. <laughs> so it's a win from me. Okay, so that's been the Millennial Divide. If you've liked what you've heard, 
tell us. Tell us what you think about a deep dive. We're giving it a go. We think that there's merit in this. Um, we are willing to adapt back if you feel that there is no merit. But we are interested in going a bit deeper into issues affecting millennials that span different opinions and issues and um, experiences. So we will keep doing this and pick topics that are um, relevant to this generation. But tell us what you think. So you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Insta. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Podcast. <laughs> I always forget. I call it iTunes. For free. For free. You can download, subscribe. And we will see you next week with another big episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.